0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good
1: afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. And Dan Rice, he's given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. We're glad to have you with us today. We're going to hear from author Sarah Beth Marr. She's the author of Dreaming with God. A bold call to step out and follow God's lead. I think we all need that prompting these days, given our current circumstances. And in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear a classic interview with Nancy Anderson, avoiding the greener pastor syndrome. Actually, it's avoiding the greener grass syndrome, how to grow affair-proof hedges around your marriage. This is a very trying time for lots of couples who are spending more time together than they're used to. This is a great uh, reminder of some things we need to do to protect the marriage vows that we have made to one another. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour of today's program. So I hope you'll stick around with us. Well, yesterday was, of course, um, the March for Life, the annual event that's taken place every year since, well, shortly after Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton were decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. Every year, we have seen hundreds of thousands of people come to Washington, D.C. in January. Now, I say we see you don't get much coverage of this event. You can have five people in downtown Portland and you think you know half the city showed up. But for the March for Life, the national event, it's a march for the sanctity of life in January in Washington, D.C. You may not get to see the numbers, but they're there by the. Uh, by the hundreds of thousands. Well, that tells you something about the dedication of the pro-life movement. This year, of course, was different. Like so many recent events, the March for Life this time around, it took place virtually, but it's never been more important for pro-life Americans to make their voices heard, and activism will not end despite our current uh, circumstances. Now, sadly, the Biden-Harris administration is already providing um, insight into the commitment they have for uh, the pro-abortion movement, this will be and is the most pro-abortion administration in our nation's history. It is uh, its policies that are extreme and divisive and most Americans reject them. And for uh, to give you an example, Gary Bauer points out in one of his latest um, Email updates that while Biden supports uh, abortion on demand, 76 percent of Americans support significant restrictions on the practice of abortion. Only 15 percent believe abortion should be allowed at any time during all nine months of pregnancy. Seventy seven percent of Americans oppose the use of federal tax dollars to subsidize abortions overseas. More on that in a moment. Seventy seven percent oppose that. Fifty eight percent oppose using federal tax dollars to subsidize abortions here at home through Obamacare, through Medicaid. Planned Parenthood. And 70% oppose aborting a baby just because it has Down syndrome. There's a piece of legislation that's being introduced to put an end to that. Well, if Biden were serious about unity, there's plenty of common ground to be found in promoting pro-life policies. But that's not what we're going to see. Uh, 200 House Republicans have signed a letter to the congressional leadership, and they're urging them to protect the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal funding of most abortions. Unfortunately, today's um, predominant party will not tolerate any compromise on the issue of abortion. Well, last year, Joe Biden reversed his longstanding opposition to taxpayer funding of abortion, and not one House Democrat joined their Republican colleagues in support of the Hyde Amendment. So this is a, a, a sad day in that context. Also, President Biden signed an executive order last Thursday afternoon, and that reversed the Mexico City policy, and that permits U.S. aid money, once again, to fund groups that provide or promote abortion around the world. It also, of course, gives the United States the opportunity, the option to provide and promote abortion around the world, which under the current administration, there's no doubt will be the case. Well, the policy was first put in place by President Ronald Reagan. It was an effort to ensure that taxpayers weren't required to indirectly fund abortion procedures performed in other countries. Well, the policy has been undone via executive order by every subsequent Democratic administration and reinstated by each Republican administration. Well, the Trump administration expanded the policy to include, rather, not only family planning funds distributed by the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development, but also all foreign health assistance provided by government agencies that included the Office of the U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator and the Defense Department. Well, that expanded policy, protecting life and global health assistance, increased the amount of U.S. funding covered by the abortion prohibition from about $600 million to nearly $9 billion. So it was significant. Well, abortion advocates and interest groups in the United States, they oppose the Mexico City policy, and that has been the case since it was first enacted. Planned Parenthood, for example, they labeled it as a, a global gag rule during the Presidential primary, the Biden campaign, promised that his administration would undo the policy and permit U.S. aid money to fund abortions. But according to public opinion polls, most Americans don't want the U.S. to fund abortions in other countries. And a new poll that was out just uh, last week from Marist and the Knights of Columbus found that more than three quarters of Americans oppose using U.S. aid money to fund abortions overseas the same survey shows that voters in the biden's own party disagree with him on that issue a slight majority of democrats said that they do not want the u.s funding global abortions and nearly two-thirds of self-described pro-choice americans agreed 85 percent of independent voters meanwhile said that they oppose u.s funding of overseas abortions and yet it will stand meanwhile tony perkins with the um, uh uh, family Research Council points this out. Democratic President Biden, among his first official acts, rescinded the Protecting Life in Global Health Assistance policy, which prevents federal funds from going to foreign non-government organizations that uh, perform abortions or actively promote abortion as a method of family planning in other countries. Uh, it establishes the principle that overseas abortions should not be funded with U.S. taxpayer dollars. That's the previous Standard. It's been embraced by every Republican president, as I mentioned, first adopted in 84, and opposed by every Democrat. Tony Perkins criticized President Biden's swift uh, repeal of that uh, global health assistance policy, saying this. President Biden is returning to the pro-abortion policies of Barack Obama and forcing taxpayers back into a partnership with the overseas abortion industry. The abortion industry is well known for relentlessly pursuing taxpayer dollars and will exploit any opportunity to grab U.S. taxpayer money. With this action, President Biden is throwing aside any notion of uniting or healing American political divisions and is demonstrating that unity means conformity to the goals and priorities of those who embrace abortion on the left. Family Research Council and the pro-life movement will always affirm the universal ideal that all human beings have inherent worth and dignity regardless of their age or nationality. We will continue fighting to create a culture of life in which every child is welcomed into the world and protected under our laws, both here and abroad. But on this uh, week following the Sanctity of Human Life Week and the March for Life that would have taken place in Washington but took place virtually this year, given circumstances, those of us who stand for life will need to continue to do so under the, uh, the new rubric. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're working our way through some of the day's headlines. Uh, We'll get to that in just a moment. But I also want to remind you coming up later this hour, we're going to hear from Sarah Beth Marr. She's the author of Dreaming with God, A Bold Call to Step Out and Follow God's Lead. Well, former President Donald Trump and the use of the word former is pretty significant here because we're talking about impeachment trial that's coming up next week. Former President Donald Trump on Sunday announced a new legal defense team after he parted ways with five of his old impeachment lawyers just over a week before the Senate trial is set to begin. South Carolina lawyers Butch Bowers, Deborah Barbier and former federal prosecutor Greg Harris, Johnny Gasser and Josh Howard had left the defense team by Saturday, according to sources, calling it a mutual decision. Well, the source said the lawyers left over a difference of opinion on the direction of the defense's argument. Now, before I move forward, I think it's important to point out that there's still some question as to the constitutionality of impeaching a president who is no longer in office. That said... Another anonymous source told the Associated Press, uh, Bowers and Barbier left because Trump wanted them to make election fraud allegations during the trial. Trump will now be represented by uh, trial lawyer David Schoen and Bruce Castor Jr. Well, the changes come with little time before the former president faces charges that he incited the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on the 6th of January, leaving the exact members of the uh, of his defense team and their approach up in the air. At a crucial moment. Now, my guess is they've given a lot of thought to this, and they will be prepared. But that's the latest. Now we need to take a break. So, uh, say where you are. We're going to be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we're going to hear from Sarah Beth Marr, Dreaming with God, a bold call to step out and follow God's lead. Good time to give that some consideration. Just before the break, we were talking about President Trump, who has expressed, well, certainty that he's going to be acquitted because 45 out of 50 Republicans in the Senate voted earlier this month to dismiss the trial on a point of order brought forward by Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. Now, that has yet to fully develop. We'll continue to follow the story. Well, in other developments, a political reporter says former President Trump's base is getting stronger since he left office, and impeachment will only empower the former president. Meanwhile, the Trump impeachment conviction is being urged in a letter being circulated by House aides. And historian Jay Wink, he says the vindictive and harsh Trump impeachment trial won't bode well for Democrats. Only time and history will tell if that is the case. Meanwhile, COVID-19 vaccines are effective against current variants, but a new one may prove more difficult. That's according to Dr. Tom Inglesby. He's the director of the Centers for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Speaking on Sunday, he said that while COVID-19 vaccines continue to prove effective against the current variants, this might not continue to be the case if more variants emerge. Well, Dr. Inglesby, he downplayed concerns about recently discovered variants, particularly in South Africa, which has reportedly displayed resistance to some treatments and possibly the vaccine itself. What we're seeing, he said, is that the variant that was found in South Africa, at least in mild to moderate disease, some of the vaccine studies are showing diminished effectiveness. He confirmed um, in an interview with Chris Wallace while noting that we still have enough cushion with the vaccines uh, that they are still very effective at this point. Dr. Inglesby warned, however, that it is a message that's, uh, saying this virus is evolving, could continue to evolve in ways that make it more dangerous, either more transmissible or more lethal. Dr. Inglesby, he praised the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, however, saying that it was an amazing development that provides a much-needed boost as the country pushes to vaccine, vaccinate rather more people in an aggressive campaign. Well, semi-aggressive, we'll just put it that way. Well, in other developments, at top Epidemiologist is urging single doses of COVID-19 vaccines and an Instagram influencer got the COVID-19 vaccine in New York, arguing that, well, she's an educator. Well, the U.S. is expressing grave concern over reports of a military coup in Burma that will take action. Well, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who was just recently confirmed, confirmed rather, condemned reports that the Burmese military took control of the country and detained senior leaders, including Aung San Suu Kyi, its de facto leader, and call for the military to reverse these actions immediately. That's a direct quote. Mawadi TV, which is controlled by the military, announced the takeover. They cited a section of the military-drafted constitution that allows the military to take control in times of national emergency. The presenter said the reason for the takeover was in part due to the government's failure to act on the military's claims of voter fraud in last November's election and its failure to postpone the election because of the coronavirus crisis. The state of emergency has been declared for a year. So I guess some things are um, pretty much the same everywhere. The National League for Democracy, which is led by Suu Kyi, said in a statement obtained by Reuters that those in the country should reject the military actions. The actions of the military are actions to put the country back under a dictatorship, the statement read. I urge people not to accept this, to respond and wholeheartedly to protest against the coup by the military. Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, said the U.S. is alarmed by reports from Burma. President Biden has been briefed on the unfolding situation there by the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. In other news, Gordon Chang says that China's testing Biden with incursions against Taiwan. And India says this is a very dangerous time. Will Biden pass the test and in what way? California... Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom is facing a GOP-led recall. He's also being criticized by Democrats over the COVID-19 response, and there may be some rivals emerging. A Democratic Party tweet is accusing Biden of contradicting his original promise for a third $2,000 stimulus check. And Jared Kushner and deputies have been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize over Israel uh, over deals relating to Israel, as has Black Lives Matter. Senator um, Sanders has dismissed Biden's unity pledge to push for COVID relief. And Chicago's mayor has ordered teachers to return to the classroom as a tug of war with the union intensifies. Show up or you will no longer have access to the portal reaching your students. In the latest business news, Chevron, Exxon, mobile executives have discussed a merger, according to The Wall Street Journal. And a new Republican stimulus proposal would cost about six hundred billion dollars and include more direct checks. U.S. consumers are shunning cash during the COVID-19 pandemic, according to the Wall Street Journal, and the U.S. hedge funds bought, sold most stocks in 10 years last week. Well, challengers, as I mentioned earlier, are emerging in the recall effort of California Governor Gavin Newsom, the Emmy-winning uh, governor, and some are forming platforms. Former San Diego Mayor Kerry uh, Kevin, rather, Falconer, has raised more than a million dollars to challenge Gavin Newsom. Meanwhile, Facebook is working to help him, rejecting ads for his recall. And a Catholic newspaper is the latest to face Twitter bigotry for uh, noting science on the trans issue. The tweet from the reporter from the Catholic World Report that got them banned from Twitter, Biden plans to nominate Dr. Rachel Levine, a biological male identifying as a transgender woman who has served as Pennsylvania's health secretary since 2017, to be HHS Assistant Secretary of Health. Levine is also a supporter of the contraceptive mandate. So simply describing accurately, scientifically, was enough to get them banned from Twitter. Los Angeles city officials are apparently getting rich as homelessness spikes there. Several city officials tasked with eradicating homelessness in Los Angeles are paid more than members of the President's Cabinet, According to auditors, that's the U.S. president, former housing and community investment director Rushmore Cervantes was paid about $254,937 per year, while four assistant general managers raked in over $200,000 per year, according to the survey. The salary for a cabinet secretary stands at two hundred and twenty one thousand four hundred dollars annually. Well, the pay revelations comes as the city faces a budget crisis and a homelessness crisis. Los Angeles annual count of the homeless population revealed that forty one thousand two hundred and ninety unique individuals were living in vehicles, shelters or on the streets. That's a fourteen point two percent increase from twenty nineteen. The census was uh, conducted before the COVID-19 pandemic, rather, which is expected to exacerbate the crisis. A report from Economic Roundtable projected that an additional 52,300 individuals will be homeless in Los Angeles County by 2023 due to the economic downturn. And the community is reacting with rage as San Francisco, the school board, voted to kill the historical names of a number of schools. Even the left is upset with the left uh, this time. From New York Times, less than 12 hours after the city's Board of Education voted to uh, change the names, Mayor London Breed lashed out at the decision, questioning the board's priorities. Let's bring the same urgency and focus on getting our kids back in the classroom, and then we can have the longer conversation about the future of school names, Ms. Breed said during the meeting. Even more scathing was the San Francisco Chronicle editorial board, which wrote that members of the Board of Education had largely quit the education business and rebranded themselves as amateur historians. These are educators as amateur historians. Well, President Biden appears to be fueling more gun sales as citizens believe that he will soon be coming for their weapons, the ones they already possess and the ones they're buying in some record numbers. Well, take that, ex-FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith's received probation, not prison, which he deserved, for altering emails about Carter Page, according to the Daily Caller. So things are moving at least in that direction. And President Biden invited moderate Republican senators to talk coronavirus relief package today. In any event, Democrats are ready to go it alone. Republicans across the country are pushing for stricter voting rules, according to the Washington Examiner and Joe Biden lied. That's trending on Twitter as critics from his own party are demanding the $2,000 stimulus checks he promised. Well, as the article explains, the complaints came after the Democratic Party posted a tweet outlining Biden's new plan to distribute $1,400 stimulus checks to American families. That would come on top of the $600 checks that were approved earlier this month. That equals $2,000. Well, semantics aside, people shamefully expect handouts and vote in favor of government doling them out like candy. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice show. I need to take a quick break, but we'll return in a few moments to hear from Sarah Beth Marr, Dreaming with God. Stay with us.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine
1: Rice show. Well, the world tells us the way to make all our dreams come true is to set our own course and to strive every day toward that course. But when it's all on us, we end up feeling exhausted, frustrated, and disappointed, especially if we, it doesn't turn out the way we'd hoped. Well, in our new book, Dreaming with God, A Bold Call to Step Out and Follow God's Lead, Sarah Beth Marr, who is a professional ballerina, weaves together her unique story as a professional ballerina, as well as a wife and mother to inspire women to keep dreaming and fully experience God's dreams are better than the plans that we have for ourselves. When we've ex- when we accept God's invitation to dream with Him, she says, uh, we're relieved of the pressure to hold our lives and our dreams together on our own. And what a relief that can be! Living out the dreams that God created us for. Uh, Mars shows readers how God plants dreams in our in their hearts for a purpose, and she points readers to the truth that God's ultimate desire is for everyone to experience a deeper relationship with Him. Well, Sarah Beth Mar danced professionally for more than 15 years as a ballerina and now encourages women in the dance of life and faith through her writing, speaking at mops, international groups and women's events, teaching God's word. She and her husband, Brian, have three sons. They live in Dallas, Texas. Today, she joins us to talk about her new book, Dreaming with God, a bold call to step out and follow God's lead. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah Beth. Oh,
2: thank you so much. I could not be more excited to be here with you. So thank you so much for having me. Well,
1: let's talk about your background as a ballerina. Tell us a little bit about that career and how the ballet world challenged you to dream with God.
2: Sure. I began dancing professionally right out of high school, and um, that really kind of propelled me on a path of Uh, seeking the Lord in a deeper way. Um, The ballet world um, is is wonderful. It's also challenging. And so it really um, made me kind of come to a point in my life where I thought, you know, I know Jesus. I believe in Him. I have since I was kind of a little girl, really. And I kind of started to wonder um, you know, is he really leading my life though? And it was in those years of dancing professionally that I just learned to really lean on him um, more and, and, and get to a place of actually letting him lead um, my life.
1: Now, when you came to the realization that you hadn't really consulted him to determine if the course you had taken was what he had in mind for you, did you find that God's dream for you was d- divergent from the, the path that you were already on? Or what kind of modifications did you find were, were needed? if any. Right.
2: Right. Um, I, I never questioned um, life as a ballerina. I definitely feel like that was part of the journey that God had for me, but it really made me um, uh, more so just evaluate, am I really putting him first in my life? Am I really open to what his plans are for me versus maybe what I think I want to do? And so um, it just really um, gave me a chance to lean into him, to to seek Him and to to go, okay, God, you know, actually, what do you have in mind for me? And um, I continued to dance um, for 15 years professionally and um, also became a mom to three sons through those years, and really um, kind of all these different dreams um, kind of would start to spark um, in my heart, and I felt like as I sought the Lord, He would um, give me new desires and Um, Different ones, some of them involved dancing, and then some of them involved becoming a mom, and then later, of course, um, it became about. wanting to write and wanting to encourage other women um, to really discover the beauty of allowing God to lead their lives.
1: Now, as we look at your bio, you are an author, a ballerina, a wife and a mother. One might assume you're doing all of those things all at the same time. Describe the challenge of balancing them all and whether or not things come in seasons where uh, maybe you are, are one thing predominantly in one season, perhaps that shifts over time.
2: Definitely. Um, there have definitely been seasons where I focused more on one role. Of course, when I was dancing, I had wonderful help from family, um, with my kiddos and I had so much support in that. And so, um, But it's always been a bit of a juggling dance for sure. Now um, it's a different season for me. I, in a sense, hung up my pointe shoes a couple of years ago, and I focused much more on um, writing and speaking and um, encouraging my readers. And um, it's sweet timing. God's timing is really so good because I think I couldn't have done this even five years ago. Um, And, you know, now my kiddos are in school, and so I have you know, free hours to work on writing. And so I definitely think God, um, part of his purpose for us in discovering the dreams he has for us is it's all on his perfect, sweet timetable. And mm. I'm so thankful
1: for that. Well, I appreciate your emphasis on timing, because sometimes we know that God has given us a dream of, of or a vision of the future. And yet the timing in our head doesn't necessarily uh, correspond to his timing. Now, I have to ask you what every woman listening <laughs> is thinking. You were a ballerina while you were having your children. How on earth did that work out? Not just, you know, managing to take care of the kids, mm-hmm. but physically, how did you manage that?
2: Yes. Um, Well, it's funny. I I actually thought when I uh, was going to have my first son, I thought for sure I'm going to stop dancing because, um, you know, that just the two didn't seem to go together. Right. Um, But again, I had such sweet support around me and, um, and my husband and my family and the director of my ballet company, they just wanted to help me make it happen. So we did, we, I mean, I had babies up at the ballet studio with me for sure. Um, and then with each, I, I have three sons. So with each son, it was a little bit different with my second son. Um, I brought him to the studio quite a bit as well. I also didn't dance Full, full time when I had Mm -hmm. three babies, (laughs) Um, I definitely backed off. And then what's kind of a fun story um, with my third son, um, I actually uh, danced in the Nutcracker pregnant with him. And so it was a funny experience of uh, feeling quite nauseous, as those mamas can understand. I was in that first trimester not feeling well. But when I got on the stage, it was like I felt forgot the morning sickness, and um, it actually <laughs> helped me cope uh, with the morning sickness. So it was a challenge, but um, it was so fun.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, make a note. If you are having trouble with morning sis- sickness, you need to get into ballet. <laughs> That'll get you through. <laughs> Your book really, it. Fo- really focuses on a dependence on God. Now, as an athlete, you train and you prepare so that when you are actually dancing before an audience, it's almost like second nature to you. Mm-hmm. Talk about what it means to be dependent on God as we are seeking his dreams for us and His purpose for our life.
2: Well, I love that analogy you gave. That you know, we the more we kind of practice it, it becomes second nature. And I think that's what is the challenge with um, becoming dependent on God is is it does take practice, and it's not our nature. Our nature is is to do life on our own and to kind of lean into the world's um, message of. Chase down your dreams, make them happen. You know it's all on your shoulders, and it, and so in a way it, it feels very countercultural to um, to follow what scripture says, and scripture scripture echoes be still, trust God, wait, um, and and it can feel um, just very kind of against what everybody else is doing, and so um, it, it definitely takes practice. I think it takes a daily. Surrender. Um, you know, I, I, you know, even after writing this book, I think every single day it, it's not something I think we conquer for sure. I think it's something um, that I, like, I have to remind myself of every single day. You mm-hmm. know, let go, let God lead.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Sarah Beth Marr. She is a ballerina, among other things, a wife, a mom, and an author. Her book is titled Dreaming with God, A Bold Call to Step Out and Follow God's Lead. The book is published by Baker Books. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Sarah Beth Marr. She danced professionally for more than 15 years as a ballerina, now encourages women in the dance of life and faith through the writing, through her writing, speaking at MOPs international groups and women's events, teaching the word. She and her husband uh, live in the Dallas, Texas area. Now you had a dream um, as a, as a dancer, but you also had a dream to uh, be a writer. How did that dream come about and how did God orchestrate things so that you understood that what you dreamed of doing coincided with what he dreamed for you. Right.
2: Um, Actually, it was when my dancing dream kind of felt in a way like it was – in a way slipping from my life that I actually really started to, to, to seek the Lord and to um, and to seek His plans for my life um, in, in a deeper way. And um, it was a time of um, really pressing into Him because I did not know where He was leading, which of course, that's how we feel a lot of the time in life. Um, and I wanted to just Sometimes I wish he would kind of send me this uh, timeline or email of a more direct plan. Of course, that's not how he works, but it was a sweet time of just pressing in and um, seeking him. And as I did that, I felt um, that he just started to kind of sprout these desires. Um, I think as we tune into him, he shapes our desires and, um, and, and guides us to the plans he has for us. Through the desires of our heart, but of course there were times when I thought, "Is listening to the desires of my heart a good thing or a bad thing?" But I learned as long as I'm seeking Him and in Scripture and spending time in prayer, He would faithfully lead me. And really, when I did that, I started seeing some little hints to this writing dream. Um, I, I've always been a journaler, and and that's my way of connecting with God. Um, and it's not something I force myself to do. It's something I almost have to do. I feel compelled to do. And so those years of journaling in obscurity where, you know, I never thought I would ever share something I would write. Um, but it was those years of journaling that I feel like, um, in a way, trained me to write um, and, and began to um, sprout that, uh, that dream of writing. And, and also, I, I just want to mention that many, many Christian books by Christian women authors ministered to me. I, there were so many times where um, a, a, a Christian author felt like a mentor to me, and just pointing me to the Word and pointing me to Jesus. And I, I, I savor those books; I keep them. And 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 it was really through those I realized there's something about a book for some people. Some people, you know, find God in a deeper way through a book. And so that's something that I wanted to be able to do um, after I kind of sought the Lord about it, and and He led me in that. <laughs>
1: Now, um you write about the American Dream and the fact that it's at odds with the message of hopeful, confident dependence. How do you see the American Christian community struggling with the the conflicting message of attaining the American dream and acknowledging and and pursuing your dependence on God?
2: I definitely think it's tricky um, because yes, I think the American dream is is a beautiful dream, you know, and um, I think um, it's not wrong i don 't think there's anything um, uh, bad about the about wanting the American dream, but I do believe that God wants in on that, and I think um, I think um, you know as a community I think as we surround ourselves with um you know, scripture and prayer and and fellowship with other believers, and and um and just kind of keep that that in check. You know, am I am I following the American dream with God and letting Him lead the way, or am I just chasing it um, all on my
1: own? Mm. Now, what's uh what tip do you have for readers to retrain their dreams to align with God's? That's a great question.
2: Um, you know I. What I want for readers is I want them to be able to see that dreaming with God is, it isn't just about getting to the dream itself and fulfilling a particular dream. It's really about the journey with Jesus. And so, my tips would be that um, for women to really um, just start having conversations heart to heart with God. You know, I think what happens is as little girls, we have all these big dreams, right? When you're a little girl, nothing is off limits. We we dream big, and then I think when we become grown ups, I think practicality and responsibilities and real life take over, and we kind of suppress um, our dreaming hearts. And so um, this book is uh, is a is a great resource um, to kind of wake up our dreaming hearts again, and um, and to really just. Um, my tips would be to pray, to open that conversation with the Lord again in a way to to give yourself permission to dream either for the first time or again. And then another tip, I would say, you know, I think we've heard the truth. Um, some of us over and over again, you know, God has a plan for your life and God um, has good works laid out for you. But I think, again, sometimes our grown-up hearts lose sight of that. And I think Mm -hmm. we, or maybe we don't even believe it anymore. And so we're just kind of going through life kind of in the motions and uh, through the motions. And so I think it's kind of getting back to, you know, allowing ourselves to believe that, allowing ourselves to believe that God really, really does have a purpose and a plan for your life. He really, really did create you with unique Personality traits and character qualities that he actually wants to use uh, to bring you into his plans for you in order to affect his kingdom on earth. And I think just getting back to that place of going, you know what, like letting myself believe that again.
1: The book is titled Dreaming with God A Bold Call to Step Out and Follow God's Lead. Sarah Beth Marr is the author, published by Baker Book. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so, so much for having me on today.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we we'll hear from uh, Nancy Anderson, author of Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome How to Grow a Fair Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. And while we're in quarantine, it might seem like, well, that's not as necessary as one might imagine, but it's always a good time to put uh, hedges around your marriage. That's coming up later in the. Latter part of this hour. Well, Oregon's controversial Measure 110 went into effect today, decriminalizing possession of hard drugs like cocaine and heroin, methamphetamine, and oxycodone. I know it's still shocking to me, too, but the measure reclassifies possession of small amounts of hard drugs as a civil violation. Offenders face a $100 fine, which they can avoid with a health assessment. It's a 24 7 phone service that will help determine what services an individual might need. Now, what services they might need, which services are available, might be two different things. Well, small amounts include less than one gram of heroin or MDMA, two grams of cocaine or methamphetamines, 12 grams of um, psychedelic mushrooms, and 40 doses doses of LSD, oxycodone, and uh, methadone. People suffering from addiction are more effectively treated with health care services than with criminal punishment, the bill reads, a health approach includes a health assessment to figure out the needs of people who are suffering from addiction, and it also includes connecting them to the services they need, end quote. Again, this is the bill. Uh, Oregon will also fund addiction treatment and harm reduction efforts by relocating millions of dollars from the state's cannabis tax. Well, moderate amounts of those same drugs also saw classification reduced from a felony to a misdemeanor, simple possession, according to Um, The uh, the new law. Voters passed this measure in November with strong support from more than 100 organizations that included the Oregon chapter of the American College of Physicians, Oregon Nurses Association, the Oregon School of Psychologists Association, Oregon Academy of Family Physicians and the ACLU, as well as others. Now, one hopes they know something that the most of us who are attempting to understand by applying common sense. Uh, and that this will be more effective than we anticipate, but it is uh, the first of its kind all across the country. Haven Wheelock, who is a harm reduction specialist who uh, uh, filed the uh, the measure, according to OPB, said uh, this, it takes a lot of courage to try something new, and I'm really proud of our state. Uh, Haven went on to say, I'm excited to be a model for other places to show that we don't have to harm people for being sick. Well, opponents of the measure argue that Oregon is ill-equipped to handle such a radical new approach to drug use and addiction, and that's one big question. Are we prepared? And um, uh, Kevin Barton, who's a district attorney for Washington County, said, I'm hopeful with this new effort that it will be successful to address addiction, but I think everyone can agree it's an experiment. And, of course, experiments can go either way. So we'll continue to follow that story. It is very concerning if, uh, um, if it's unsuccessful what the fallout may in fact be. Well, in other news, the uh, real inciter of the uh, violence that we saw back in January, well, conspiracy theorist Alex Jones claims that he funded the rally that led to the Capitol chaos. Not sure what uh, purpose that pronouncement was made, but Biden's pick for Commerce Secretary ran a state ranked one of the worst To start a business. That's the pick for commerce secretary. And twenty-one men now accused the Lincoln Project co-founder of sexual harassment. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Lincoln Project, these were Republicans who strongly opposed uh, President Donald Trump. And apparently um, uh, the Lincoln Project co founder has been accused of sexual harassment, including solicitation of a 14-year-old boy. Well, Johnson & Johnson, COVID uh, vaccine is somewhat less effective than others, but offers one-shot solution. I think about 66% is what they're saying. And Gitmo prisoners will be offered vaccines this week ahead of most Americans. Well, the program has since been postponed following a significant backlash. The Centers for Disease Control is issuing a sweeping public transportation mask mandate for travelers. And what could possibly go wrong? Oregon becoming the first state to decriminalize cocaine, heroin, meth, and other illicit drugs. Under national security, two Proud Boys are facing federal conspiracy charges in the Capitol riot, according to Politico, and an Islamic State senior leader in Iraq has been killed, or rather have been, um, uh, killed in a U.S.-led coalition airstrike, so apparently more than one. And Russia has developed a super electromagnetic pulse weapon with China close behind. Now, those are nuclear weapons that are detonated at a particular height that renders what's below... Um, Ineffective, your uh, electricity grid and infrastructure is rendered inoperable. Well, in business, uh, Puerto Rico's effective minimum wage would be $68 an hour under the Biden plan. Thinking about relocating. Gretchen Whitmer's Michigan was number one in jobs lost last month. And in the annals of social justice, the caliphate, Twitter suspended a Christian magazine for calling Biden's biologically male nominee a male. So apparently science applies and it doesn't apply. It just kind of depends on the cultural norm. Coca-Cola is requiring even affiliated law firms to meet their intersectional diversity quotas as well. Odds and ends, non-copus mentis New York Mayor Bill de Blasio is moving to ban hookups of relatively clean natural gas. And Russia has arrested 4,500 during protests backing the dissident Alexei Navalny. On this day in history, 1790, and no, I was not here at the time, the U.S. Supreme Court convenes for the very first time in New York. 1943, during World War II, one of America's most highly decorated military units, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, made up almost exclusively of Japanese-Americans, is authorized. And oh, did those guys fight. 1964, black college students begin a sit-in protest at a Woolworth's lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, where they've been refused service. 2003, the space shuttle Columbia breaks up during reentry, killing all seven of its crew members Commander Rick Husband, Pilot William McCool, Payload Commander Michael Anderson, Mission Specialist Kalapana Chawla, David Brown, and Laurel Clark, and Payload Specialist Ilhan Rahman, the first Israeli in space. Well, as I mentioned, Johnson & Johnson announced on Friday that its coronavirus vaccine was 72% effective against the pathogen in the U.S., and the company will ask federal regulators for approval this month. Unlike the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna candidates, Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is administered in one shot. The vaccine uses a relatively new technology to deliver a coronavirus gene into the body by using a modified form of the common cold. The gene instructs bodily cells to make a protein similar to coronavirus, which wards off the infection. At least that's the theory. And while the vaccine is not as effective as those of Pfizer and Moderna, Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is still strong enough, they tell us, to give widespread protection from coronavirus. Well, the company has the ability to ship millions of doses, and a February approval would add the vaccine to the tools currently being used to fight the pandemic. While the vaccine's efficacy rate is 72 percent in the U.S., that rate dropped to 57 percent in trials in South Africa, where a new variant of coronavirus is spreading. Well, that variant, labeled B1351 B1351. Has also been found to slightly reduce the efficacy of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Concern over the variant prompted the uh, Biden administration to impose a travel ban from South Africa earlier this week. Well, New York Attorney um, General Letitia James said that the State Department of Health underreported COVID 19 deaths there in New York in nursing homes by as much as 50%. That's according to a report that was released on Thursday. The report holds New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's feet to the fire for his handling of the coronavirus pandemic in the early months of 2020 after he directed nursing homes in the Empire State to accept patients who had or were suspected of having COVID-19. Well, the decision created an onslaught of COVID-19 cases that infected thousands of elderly patients and resulted in hundreds of deaths among the state's most vulnerable population. The State Department of Health reported that as of January 27th of this year, There were 5,957 confirmed deaths due to the coronavirus in nursing homes and an additional 2,700 presumed deaths. In assisted care facilities, there were 160 and 52 presumed deaths there as well. Well, Cuomo has defended the nursing home policy as uh, in line with guidance from the Trump administration at the time. The governor was silent Thursday following the AG report and didn't respond to a request for comment, but it has since been revealed that they did not follow the guidelines that had been set forth. The report said that government guidance requiring the administration of COVID-19 patients into the nursing homes may have put residents at increased risk of harm in some facilities and may have obscured the data available to assess that risk. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in our next couple of segments, we're going to share a conversation with Nancy Anderson. She's the author of Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow Affair Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. Might be a good time to give that some thought under our current very stressful circumstances. Well, former President uh, Donald Trump and again former being the operative word on Sunday announced a new legal defense team after he parted ways with five of his impeachment lawyers just over a week before the Senate trial is set to begin. South Carolina lawyer Butch Bowers and Deborah Barrier, uh, former federal prosecutor Greg Harris, Johnny Gasser and Josh Howard had left the defense team by Saturday. Uh, calling it a mutual decision. Well, the source says the uh, the lawyers left over a difference of opinion on the direction of the defense's arguments. Well, The president uh, will now be represented by the trial lawyers, David Schoen and Bruce L. Castor. Well, the changes come with a little time before the former president faces charges that he incited the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol earlier this uh, last month, rather leaving the exact members of his defense team and their approach up in the air at a pretty crucial time. Well, the president says he's former president says he's pretty certain to be acquitted, however, uh, because 45 out of 50 Republicans in the Senate voted earlier this month to dismiss the trial on a point of order brought forward by Senator Rand Paul. The remaining five Republicans voted with Democrats to end debate on the motion that argued Trump's impeachment trial is unconstitutional because he is no longer in office. Now there are two reasons one might pursue an impeachment and that applies of course to a president or others holding federal office. One would be to remove the individual from office, which Donald Trump no longer holds. The second would be to deprive the individual. And I think we've seen this in decisions made in lower federal positions to provide uh, rather deprive the individual of the opportunity to hold office again in the future. Meanwhile, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and 45 members of his caucus backed the effort to declare the impeachment trial uh, unconstitutional. That was on Tuesday. Uh, McConnell's colleague from uh, Kentucky, Senator Rand Paul, introduced that legislation. McConnell joined all but five senators in opposing the Schumer a uh, uh, prospect signaling a willingness to entertain the argument that the impending trial is unconstitutional. Now, the point of order resolution effectively forced Republicans to declare on the record whether they consider the impeachment trial constitutional, given that it's taking uh, place after pr- uh, President Trump has left office. That resolution failed after a majority of senators voted in favor of Schumer's move to table it, meaning the impeachment trial will go ahead as planned next week. However, only five Republicans voted against the resolution. Not surprisingly, Mitt Romney of Utah, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine, Ben Sass of Nebraska and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. At the close of the impeachment trial itself, at least 17 Republican senators would need to join the Democrats in order to convict Trump. Uh, Senator Collins said following the vote that there would be little chance of an impeachment conviction, but there will be a trial. Meanwhile, a federal judge on Tuesday last temporarily blocked President Trump's attempt to put a moratorium on deportations for 100 days. Uh, After Texas sued over the policy, the judge blocked Biden via a temporary restraining order from moving forward for 14 days. Well, Texas lawsuit claims that the administration would be violating an agreement it has with the Department of Homeland Security and would require at least 180 days notice as well as consultation prior to implementing changes in immigration policy. It's not clear whether those terms are enforceable, but similar agreements were struck with several other states under the former administration. The U.S. uh, district judge implemented a nationwide injunction because a geographically limited order wouldn't adequately protect Texas interests due to the free flow of movement of illegal aliens from the states from other states, rather, particularly during a pandemic. Well, over the weekend, an email was sent uh, to ICE officers calling for, that called, rather, for stopping all removals and to release them all immediately. Well, President Biden has pledged to move forward with a moratorium on deportations as his administration resets its approach toward U.S. immigration following the change in administration. Non-citizens who have engaged in or who are suspected of having engaged in terrorism and espionage Can still be deported. The moratorium, which took effect on Friday, also doesn't apply to people who were not physically present in the United States as of November 1st, 2020. I made brief reference earlier in the program to the uh, uh, confirmation on Tuesday, 78 to 22, of Anthony Blinken as the next Secretary of State. Will be a key figure in President Biden's efforts to restore alliances across the globe, as they put it, and forge a new foreign policy approach. It makes Blinken the 71st Secretary of State. He succeeds Mike Pompeo as America's top diplomat. Well, Secretary Blinken, who has worked for the Senate and the Clinton and Obama administrations, has said his priorities are building up the diplomatic core and revitalizing core alliances. Blinken is 58. He was a member of the President Bill Clinton's National Security Council staff in 94 through 2001. He began his uh, pretty long relationship with Biden in 2002 when he became the Democratic Staff Director for the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, where Biden served as chairman at the time. When um, uh, Senator Biden became vice president in 2009, Blinken also moved over to the administration as Biden's national security Advisor and later promoted to, to Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama. Secretary Blinken was confirmed once before by the Senate in December of 2014 when President Obama nominated Blinken to become a Deputy Secretary of State under John Kerry. The vote was 55-38 at that time. Lee's well, earned bipartisan praise for his long foreign policy expertise, for his responses during a smooth confirmation hearing in January of uh, this year. However, critics have accused him of being on the wrong side of key foreign policy matters. And that, of course, does matter. He was Biden's advisor when the then-senator backed the Iraq War, something Biden later called a mistake. Blinken also reportedly um, supported military action in Libya and pushed for the U.S. to be more aggressive in Syria. Uh, Blinken will play a key role in reversing much of President Donald Trump's foreign policy moves and adopt a more multilateralist approach to foreign policy matters. President Biden has promised to re enter the Iran nuclear deal from which President Trump withdrew, reestablish relations with Cuba, and push for a new start nuclear deal with Russia. However, Secretary Blink said last week that Trump was right to take a tougher stance on China, saying, and I quote, President Trump was right in taking a tougher approach to China, not the way he went about it in a number of ways, but the basic principle. Was right. End quote. He's also backed the Abraham Accords, a number of deals normalizing relations between Israel and Arab states, a move for which President Trump has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Already, Biden has halted the U.S. withdrawal from the World Health Organization and re entered the Paris Climate Agreement. Well, former White House senior advisor Jared Kushner. His deputy, Avi Berkowitz, as well as former U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, and former Israeli ambassador to the U.S. Ron Dermer, have been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for their roles in negotiating foreign normalization deals between Israel and Arab nations. Attorney Alan Dorshowitz, professor emeritus at Harvard Law School, he nominated the four Trump-era officials on Sunday for their roles in negotiating the deal known as the Abraham Accords. These accords, which have brought about normalization between Israel and several Sunni Arab nations, fulfill all the criteria for the prize Dershowitz wrote in his nominating letter cited by the Jerusalem Post. Uh, if anyone believes this is uh, pretty much a shoe in an actual accomplishment that would render a, an award, probably not going to be the case. Um, but Dershowitz went on to write, they um, hold the promise of an even broader peace in the Middle East between Israel, the Palestinians, and other Arab nations, they are a giant step forward in bringing peace and stability to the region and even the world. The normalization deals were announced in a four-month span between mid-August and mid-December of last year, were lauded by many as the most significant uh, diplomatic breakthroughs in the Middle East in 25 years as the region, the region rather girds for a prolonged confrontation with Iran. But you probably barely read a thing about it. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize on Monday morning by an Estonian member of the European Parliament. In a post on social media, Madison said in the last 30 years, Donald Trump is the first president who during his tenure has not started a war. Additionally, he signed several peace agreements in the Middle East which have helped provide stability in the region and peace. And finally, Black Lives Matter has apparently also been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, although on the ground during the violence of the uh, summer months of 2020 uh, and the peaceful protests that preceded them, it was difficult to find the individual or individuals responsible overall. So it's not altogether clear who ultimately will be cited to receive that Nobel Peace Prize, but it uh, the nomination has been made. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll hear a conversation with Nancy Anderson, author of Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome How to Grow a Fairproof Hedges Around Your Marriage. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, sadly, it's human nature for people to want something bigger and better than what they actually have. Currently, when problems arise in a marriage, the grass can look greener in every other yard and that can lure a believer. And for that matter, anyone into thinking they're going to find true joy and fulfillment on the other side of the marital fence. Well, in avoiding the greener grass syndrome, how to grow a fair proof hedges around your marriage. It's second edition. Nancy Anderson, my next guest, she assures readers that greener grass is only a mirage and shares how to grow the greenest grass of all in your own backyard. Well, extramarital affairs are not um, the social taboo they once were. And living in a culture that pushes the belief that life is short and you deserve to be happy doesn't help. Well, all of these provide fertile ground for the temptation to cheat in your marriage. Well, after straying to the other side of the marital fence and returning to find forgiveness and restoration, she brings personal experience and an authority to this practical book about predicting and preventing an extramarital affair. Each chapter of this second edition has been revised. A new chapter on repairing marriage following infidelity has been already, uh, after it's already occurred, is also a part of it, and she offers seven action words to describe the steps she recommends for all couples who are suffering uh, as a consequence. Well, Nancy Anderson is an award-winning writer who has contributed to 30 books, including six Chicken Soup for the Soul titles. She has written many marriage articles, has been featured in uh, national media. She and her husband, Ron Anderson, hosts the new TV program, Growing Healthy Marriages, on HSBN-TV. She joins us today from Orange County, California, to talk about her latest book, Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow A Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm so happy to be with you. It's wonderful. Well, let's, let's begin by talking about what the Greener Grass Syndrome is. Well,
3: it's not new. I think it started with Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember God gave her mm. access to everything, every tree, every flower, every fruit except one. And that's the one she wanted. And it's continued on since then with us wanting what we can't have. Even if you ever gone to dinner with somebody and that you order and then they order and you want what <laughs> what they had. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? it it just it's something we have to fight against cuz it's our selfishness we we think we're missing out on something
1: mhm now lots of us get married uh believing that our husband or our wife um, that their job is to make us happy but you write that this is a dangerous lie to believe
3: yes absolutely and i did believe that lie we both did actually my husband and i we sat around be- waiting to be made happy which That doesn't happen in marriages. Now, you have moments of happiness. And if you're both giving, then you can receive happiness. But if neither of you are giving, then neither of you will be getting. And that's where we were at. We were both demanding and critical and putting up wedges and walls. And, of course, we drifted apart and our anger overtook our life. We drifted away from the Lord. We stopped going to church we just were a mess, and that's when someone at work noticed, you know, and complimented me. And compliments are like magnets, Mm -hmm. and it's human nature to be attracted to someone who's complimenting you, and that's what happened in my case.
1: The first part of your book is titled The Ecstasy and the Agony of My Affair. You write about your betrayal, confession, restoration. Tell our listeners just a little bit about um, what happened in your marriage, which is familiar to many when uh, periods of dissatisfaction arise? Mm-hmm.
3: That's what it was. It was We were going through a, a hard time in our own marriage, and that's when you're vulnerable. And now we know that's when you need to really set up these hedges that come later in the book. But we didn't have any hedges. And this man at work, like I said, was being real nice to me, and my husband wasn't. I'm not excusing anything but I'm just telling you how a a troubled marriage can be an open door because we sat next to each other at a board meeting type table and his leg bumped up against mine. Now that happens in business and it isn't necessarily bad. It's what you do after the leg might touch. I should have pulled away and said, oh, excuse me, and that would have been the end of it. But I didn't move my leg. I let his leg be up against my leg and I shot him aside. Way's glance, uh, without a word saying I'm open to possibilities and I should never have done that. That, that mistake started the wedge that eventually almost cost me my marriage. So we began having lunches together and then lunches alone and then dinner alone. It was progressive, but each step on the way, I knew that it was leading me further away from my marriage. Mm Mm-hmm. But I continued because we know that sin is fun for a little while and there was a certain pleasure to it and it was the whole greener grass syndrome thinking that I deserved this wonderful feeling that I was having and it turned out to be a lie, a mirage. It was not green at all. And I came to my senses then. I had moved out of the house. Uh, We were headed for divorce. But through a series of circumstances really regarding my earthly father and my heavenly father, I came to realize and see myself clearly and who I had become, and it was not pretty. And so I repented to the Lord first and then to my husband. And my husband was able to forgive me. Uh, It's still a miracle, even 38 years later. But we rebuilt our marriage and and made a vow to each other to stop waiting for the other person to fix and to feed me and to begin to feed ourselves and to feed each other. Mm. Now, one and of the common...
1: Please go ahead. go ahead.
3: No, we just had to start all over because we made a mess of it.
1: Yeah. One of the common phrases that we hear, life is short and you deserve to be happy. Yeah. What does the Bible say about this notion of deserving to be happy?
3: No, that is not in the Bible, and neither is follow your heart. The heart, what the Bible says about the heart is to guard your heart one, and also that the the heart can be exceedingly wicked. Mm-hmm. Who can know it? We can devise things that we think are our heart, but they're just our emotions, and it is not a good guide to determine uh, your happiness. And the Bible talks clearly. Philippians four twelve talks about. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of contentment in every situation. And it has to do with I can do all things that God asked me to do through Christ who gives me strength. And that should be our prayer for our marriage. Yes, through rocky times. Yes, through difficult financial wayward children. Whatever it is that comes to um, be a difficulty in your marriage we can still be content. Content is very different from the emotion of happy.
1: Mm -hmm. You confess in avoiding the greener grass syndrome that in your first year of marriage, you pretty much complained and criticized your way through it. Looking back, what would you have done differently if you had that to do over again? Well, I was
3: very immature. I was 22 when we got married And I'd pretty much, you know, been to college, had roommates. I did pretty much whatever I wanted to do. So the fact that now another person, I had to uh, take care of this person, I really didn't want to. I wanted to be taken care of. So it was a really big conflict, and I just really felt um, we weren't having any fun. And I had, up until that point, pretty much dated lots of guys and if I got bored with them I just pick another one well I, I couldn't do that anymore so it was uh hard for me to come to the realization and my husband was critical he grew up in a home where profanity and yelling and criticizing were normal and I didn't know what to do with that because my family wasn't like that so we just had, we were so different. He's an optimist. I'm a pessimist. He's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. We just did not understand each other. And now we make an effort to do that. But at the time, I thought to bail to leave was easier than trying to fix it. And, of course, I was wrong, but I was just selfish.
1: What are some of the warning signs that your, your spouse might be having an affair
3: There are some classic ones, and they've changed a little over time now with the advent of all the electronic devices we Mm -hmm. have. But generally, uh, eating and sleeping and exercise patterns that change dramatically without a a reason you can think of, um, someone losing weight, uh, wearing a different style of clothes, you know, if you used to wear jeans and tennis and not care that much hair in a ponytail, and all of a sudden... They're looking glamorous. Something's going on, perhaps. Um, Starts arguments so that they can prove to themselves what a jerk the other person is. This is something I did. I'd pick a fight to further my belief that my husband was a jerk. Working longer or different hours. Pulls away from church and extended family who would maybe hold that person accountable. Takes more showers than usual compares his or her spouse to other people and shows cold emotionless behavior i did that i distanced myself from it was like i was living in two separate universes and i didn't want them to collide so i kept them very separate
0: Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm.
3: and then of course the big ones taking off the wedding ring big red flag.
1: We're talking about the book, Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, how to grow a fair proof hedges around your marriage. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how to do just that, what these hedges are, how to plant and maintain them. Uh, again, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Nancy Anderson.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Nancy Anderson. She's the author most recently of Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow Affair-Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. She doesn't just write from a theoretical standpoint, but has had the experience of having to reconcile a marriage after an affair. Now, you write about planting and growing affair-proof hedges. Let's talk first about what a hedge does and how you can grow them around your marriage to avoid... Um, the kind of uh, affairs that are so common these days or, uh, and I, I suppose we'll talk a little bit later about what to do if an affair has already taken place.
3: Okay. So the concept of hedges is a boundary, a guarding type hedge that you put around your marriage with the purpose of keeping the good things in and the bad things out. And this is something that my husband and I in our early years didn't even have a clue, didn't have a concept um, we recommend now that couples talk about these things. Even in premarital counseling, which we've done, we talk about these hedges. And the beauty of it is that each couple gets to decide where their weaknesses and strengths are and put extra protection in the areas of each couple's weaknesses. I'll run through them real quick. and so you can follow up. Uh, the first one, it spells out the word hedges. The first one is hearing, which has to do with communication. Not just talking about kids and chores, but sharing each other's dreams, each other's hurts, each other's uh, aspirations. Um, Then encouraging, which has to do with building each other up. All of us are good at pointing out someone's faults, but it has to be purposeful to build one another up. And we give some real clear advice on how to do that. Then dating, which is keeping it fresh and fun. A lot of couples. Forget that they're also a couple, not just mom and dad or part of a family, but they are a couple. And One day the kids will go away and you need to maintain your couplehood. So maintain the dating. Then guarding, which has to do with very specific boundaries at work, which especially with both people in the workplace, what are the rules? Do I, do I get in a car with a guy? Do I go to lunch alone with a guy? On business travel, do we meet? Do I go in his hotel room? Do we meet in the bar? I mean, all these sorts of things have to be talked about ahead of time. And then when the event happens, you go, oh, I'm not going to go to his room. And you say, we're going to meet in the lobby. So there's no discussion about it. There's no decision to be made. It was pre-made. So that helps a lot of people be real clear, especially with workplace things. Then there are other types, boundaries, hobbies, even people at church. You have to always be on guard, not paranoid, but on guard. Then educating, which is talking about really getting to know your spouse's personality. I mentioned that we're opposites in a lot of ways. So I actually studied how do introverts think? Why does he talk to all these strangers? I don't have any desire to talk to strangers. Why does he like doing this? And is he doing it just to annoy me? No, he's an extrovert. So by understanding him, It helped me understand maybe my reaction to him. So we talk about the things that that you can learn about your spouse, his childhood. His dad was an alcoholic. I read books about children of alcoholics. They have different issues than other people might. So that's educating. And then satisfying puts them all in perspective. And that is actually doing the action part of all the other things. Now you've learned what to do, but the actual practice of it is a whole different animal. Sometimes people don't get there. They just think about doing it, but they don't actually do it. So with those six hedges, you're in good shape.
1: Yeah, yeah. What kind of work does it take to maintain those hedges once you've established them?
3: Well, it it does take a lot of work. Just as in a real garden, I mean, you have to pull the weeds, discontentment comes along. Trials come along, you have to pull those things out that are hurtful to the marriage, and then you really have to tend to them. You have to trim it, you have to move it, Um, different things happen. You have an ill child, we had elderly parents to care for, might have a financial setback. Things happen, and those hedges have to be reconfigured.
1: Now, one of the things in this second edition of Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome is an affair repair segment in which you also offer some suggestions on how to move forward if an affair has already taken place and the couple is committed to reconciling.
3: Yes, and this is so exciting that this is in here because it wasn't in the original Mm -hmm. book. So there are seven steps, the first one of which is reveal, which means tell the whole truth. Get it all out there. Not in great detail. I am not one on giving lots of details, but but tell the whole truth. Then repent, which means to turn away from, to break off with the person, to repent to the Lord, to repent to the spouse. What do I need to do to fix this? Then reconcile, which is that joining together of trying to make it balance, um, trying to make amends. And then rebuild, which is starting over with a new foundation a recommitment to the lord a recommitment to each other and then resolve which is determining in your heart and getting a plan for change then renew which we've seen people renew their vows in a most wonderful way which was they got rebaptized together at symbolizing the new birth of their marriage as a new a new foundation and then the last one is rejoice. And that is to celebrate the awesome miracle that can happen, even with this horrible breach of a marriage, that the Lord can restore it. And that's the beauty of our relationship now, 40 years in June, is that we have been restored and we now rejoice.
1: Mm. How long did it take you uh, for your marriage, rather, to heal after you decided to remain committed to one another?
3: Well, forgiveness in my opinion, is a gift you give someone, undeserved. But trust can take as long as it takes. Now, in our case, I was really transparent about where I was and who I was with, and and I also quit my job and had no contact with this other person. So I think it was a little easier for my husband. If I would kept working there, I don't think we'd still be married. Hmm. So it took us probably two years to really feel like we could take a breath and go, okay, we're, we're on solid ground.
1: One of the things you confess is that your husband was willing to forgive and ultimately to trust you uh, sooner than you were able to trust yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And for the person who is guilty of having uh, had an affair, what challenges might they expect in this process of reconciling that they may not anticipate? I was surprised by it,
3: actually, too, um, because he forgave me. Like I said, easier than I forgave myself mm-hmm. because I'm like, how did that happen? Once the the veil, so to speak, was lifted and I saw myself clearly, what in the world have I done? I went to five years of Bible college. I knew what it, it was wrong. I just got, I was in rebellion. And once I came to my senses, much like the prodigal son that mm-hmm. came home, I came home to my husband and I had to live with and reconcile my guilt before God. Of course, God forgave me, but I had to work through my forgiveness and set up these boundaries, help me, that I will not do that again.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great book, and I would recommend it for anyone who is committed to a marriage that is protected by the hedges you write about and those who have struggled because of an affair. Again, the title of the book is Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow Affair-Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage and Find Out that the Grass on Your Side of the Fence Can Be As uh, Green As uh, as, um, You Would Hope. Nancy Anderson, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. It was Appreciate wonderful. it. Very much. By the way, the book is uh, published by Kregel
0: and is available in bookstores. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice show and like us on Facebook and join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 kpdq.